Hello everyone, it's Precious Pioneer and welcome back to another episode of Precious the Foodie. I am so happy to be back. I decided to take a much needed break. Sometimes you have to take those moments to check in and see how you're doing. And so I took a little bit of a break, but I'm back. I am so happy uh, to launch season three of this podcast. Uh, There's going to be more interesting guests from all over the world giving insight into their personal experiences with food so we can all learn and grow together. I'm just so excited for what we have coming up these next couple of months. But today I have such a great guest from Montana. He has an incredible background as both a cardiologist and a professional chef. It's not often where the two professions are connected. But let's jump in. Hi, welcome to Precious the Foodie Podcast, the show that will uncover stories through palates and memories. My name is Precious Pioneer, your host. I'm a chef, a creative, and a foodie. I'm meeting people all over the world using food as a medium to highlight truths into bite-sized pieces. Well, hello, everybody. I am Chef Dr. Mike, uh, and that really does say it all. I am a professional chef. I am an interventional cardiologist. I'm an author, and I also teach culinary medicine at uh, the University of Montana. No, that's so cool. Welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, It seems like you have such a plethora of experience in many different fields, but ironically, they're kind of all tied together, which is really interesting. I really wanted to know, where did you begin? How did you even get started um, before diving into becoming a cardiologist and a chef and all these different things? Well, sure. I I pretty much started decades ago as a fat kid. Um, So... Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in an era way before we have the communication opportunities that we do today. And my family moved around a lot as I was growing up, which meant I was kind of always the new kid. And, you know, kids can be pretty tough on each other, especially the new kid on the block, quite literally. And, you know, so for me, the kitchen, uh, my mom was a, a great home cook. Loved Julia Child, the Galloping Gourmet, had cookbooks, mm-hmm. was always in there doing stuff. So the kitchen really became a sanctuary, a, a refuge for me. And when I went to college, it's really no surprise that my first job to help get my uh, way through college uh, was in the food industry. I actually started as a dishwasher back mm-hmm. before there was any glamour in the culinary world, you know, whatsoever. There were no celebrity chefs and particularly in college, nobody wanted to work in a restaurant industry because that's when you wanted to go out with your friends. Right. And after starting as a dishwasher, I worked my way up the line, eventually became what we would consider today an executive chef. Went off to medical school from college uh, and eventually cardiology fellowship, professor appointments, et cetera, interventional cardiology fellowships, and actually went back to culinary school to get a culinary degree after that. And so I've always kept kind of my foot in both of these worlds. And eventually they came back together as, as they put together what is now uh, culinary medicine. No, I think that's actually really amazing because I find that 
Um, there's a lot of studies out there that you're either one or the other. So a chef knows a lot about food and nutrition and nutritionist knows a lot about how those kind of intertwine, but a lot of doctors in cardiology and who check your normal bodily health, you know, don't understand necessarily how the science and how specifically how food works. And so I think that's kind of cool that you get a little bit of both. Um, how come you chose cardiology specifically, you know, out of all the different regions you could have tapped into? Well, it, it turns out that that old saying, the way to someone's, you know, heart is through their stomach is quite literally <laughs> true. And, and actually in our culinary, culinary medicine program, we talk about that in terms of what we, we now know, uh, kind of a whole new, almost ancillary symbiotic organ in the gut microbiome. But mm-hmm. for me, uh, cardiology really embody as an interventional cardiologist, for those unfamiliar, I'm the guy when somebody's having a heart attack at 2 a.m., they call to come in acutely, open that artery up by putting a stent in through the legs, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, and so that aspect had a lot of appeal for me uh, in terms of being able to get in there and do something, um, you know, kind of at the edge. Uh, it's a life and death, obviously, um, mm-hmm. and to really make a difference. Yet at, at the same time, there's really a lot of science back behind that and understanding the physiology, uh, blood flow, um, et cetera. And, and so the combination of kind of the adventure, if you will, the challenges, the technical aspects, and, and as a chef, you can appreciate doing things with your hands, mm-hmm. getting a result. And then that, that really intense kind of scientific study behind it was very appealing. And, and so that's why, you know, I've done interventional cardiology and, and why I absolutely love it. No, that's, I think that's so cool. Um, Okay, so I know that your motto, I suppose, there's something that you acclaim is that you are more than what you eat. And so how does that kind of fall into your day to day? What does a typical day go for you? Are you mostly just the doctor you said that they call you um, uh, when they have emergency situations? Or uh, do you really advocate for the food side of the industry as a chef? I, I really do both. Um, so it depends on the day and, and sort of sometimes the time of the day. So uh, I do work for the university, which currently I actually do all that pro bono. So I still work as an interventional cardiologist. I set my own schedule and uh, perform interventions and that type of a work. I enjoy it. I worked very hard for many years uh, to be able to do that. Uh, so I still enjoy doing that. Uh, on the other hand, I really find that there's a need need and I have a passion about food, I always have, and there's a real need for the culinary medicine aspect of what we do because there are so many myths out there and such miscommunication that I find and and really a layer of mistrust from the public in general, which is not unwarranted because here we are telling folks, you know, not too long ago, you can't ever have eggs because they have cholesterol. Well, it turns out that the cholesterol you eat in your food has zero to minuscule impact on your blood lipid levels. And in fact, that's why in 2016, the U.S. government took those requirements, those recommendations of daily cholesterol intake away because there's no science behind it. Yet you still have organizations like the American Heart Association, I'm sorry to say, that are trying to limit people in terms of their egg intake because for so many decades, they were telling people not to eat it. There's a lot of politics and things that in out there 
and so what we try to do is follow the data and base our information recommendations on what's logical, where the data takes us, instead of you know having a political view or a financial you know um, interest in something that sways you know our opinion and recommendations. Right, definitely. I think that's one of the biggest struggles that we're currently facing, especially as a nation, as people, because um, something that we are currently suffering from is the large amounts of obesity and the access to processed foods and all these different things. And I think that when people do try to make a change and seek out education, that oftentimes uh, studies like, you're right, the American uh, Health Association and things like that are biased based on where they're getting their funding and things like that, which is which isn't safe and aligned with a lot of the studies that aren't backed by certain money and certain industries. And so I was curious on what you thought about the, not necessarily the trend, but for the doctors who are saying that, you know, the uh, vegan diets or meat-based diets. um, I was watching this documentary on, I think it was something about like the best athletes in the world and how they did a study on um, one guy ate like a, a meatless burrito for a week or something before a game. And then one guy had a chicken burrito, like a lean meat. And then someone had like a beef burrito for a week. And then they measured their blood samples and were able to find different amount of fat contents that kind of slowed down their performance a little bit. And so I wanted to know what your experience was or your insight was on studies related to things like that. Well, I, I I know the documentary you're talking about, and like a lot of the documentaries, including that What the Health documentary that was out there, you know, a, for example, a lot of the studies in that particular documentary that they quoted as studies, when you looked them up and went there, they weren't studies, they were opinions on a vegetarian or a vegan doctor's blog post. And that's a mm-hmm. far cry from a study. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of flaws with that, you know, the example you gave, because everybody metabolizes things differently, you know, and and what we teach in our course, which is something you really hit on when you were talking just a second ago, Precious, was that, you know, the processing of the food. So an industrial processed fast food, food drive-through chicken burrito is a completely different beast than, for example, a free-range chicken or even, for uh, argument's sake, grass-finished bison. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so to lump categories together like fat, we don't eat fat, we don't eat percent RDAs, we eat food. As chefs, right. we know that we make meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't we don't measure out. Oh, I'm putting 62 percent, you know, of vitamin A in this dish and that. <laughs> you know, we eat oranges and apples and and fresh right. farm veg, and that's what our bodies were built to consume. And not only that, what's even more important in in terms of new data is the fact that that's what the gut bacteria, these bacteria that have co-evolved for millions of years with us, they've co-evolved to co-metabolize certain food and nutrients with us. So that's what they're expecting is natural food. And so what in our course we really emphasize is to stop thinking, stop palate profiling, stop Mm -hmm. thinking in terms of RDAs and fats and this. Let's start thinking like chefs. Let's start thinking about food. And as chefs, you know, when I ran a kitchen, I was concerned about the quality of my food. So it's all about the quality of those ingredients that we get, because when we look towards 
groups that sustain themselves on very naturally based diets and away from the modern Western diet with its processed food and additives, what we find is that people are healthier. There's less diabetes, there's less obesity, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it really comes down to you know sourcing our ingredients, something in our course we call the art of sorcery. And as we're learning too, it's very important, not just what we eat, but how we eat. So the whole dining experience, what we talk about in our course, the food experience can have huge impacts in our physiology. Right. I I love how you highlighted how the way that we should and how we need to see food. I think that you're right. Like we as humans, we don't measure, uh, okay, vitamin C and like we line them all up to make sure that we're eating properly. <laughs> we kind of just like, okay, hmm, like this chicken sandwich sounds good. You know what I mean? We kind of, we, we eat meals. And I think as a chef, you can kind of, I think our duty is to not only for education, but we are able to see that and we pick the, the most quality ingredients and we f- we're able to find a balance between all of the different aspects of what we are eating to create a meal that we can not only enjoy, but is good for our body. And I know that a lot of food plays a role into how we feel and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel on the inside. And um, something cool that I think we do is we're really good at balancing meals to not only make it enjoyable, but like how it impacts our palate. And so we add enough salt or acid, but they all kind of play a role into our microbiome. Like acid is really good for the bacteria. Like all the yogurts and curries and different things that we kind of, you know, put into food really helps to help with our nutrition, I suppose, if I were to simplify it. Well, yeah, I I think so. And, you know, we go beyond and it's actually one of our lectures is why not just nutrition? Because a lot of when you look up culinary medicine, I think if you Google it, something like 23 million hits. And so it's an evolving discipline. There's a lot of, you know, very fluid definitions out there, Uh, you know, but something that you really, you know, hit on is the fact that, you know, as a chef, um, what we really focus on is the experience. And we work on, you know, really creating a positive food experience in terms of taste and and flavors. And I guess we understand, certainly, you know, I was taught, and I'm sure you were too, you know, about the the best ingredients. So there's, you and I know there's a, and, and really anybody who eats it knows there's a hell of a difference between a summer heirloom tomato right out of the garden, you know, mm-hmm. and something that's picked underripe in the store and subjected to ethylene oxide. And it tastes like the carton that a freaking came in. Yeah. So, and it turns out though, that there's a huge, as you said, impact on our gut microbiome, great impact in us in terms of physiology. So, you know, it's not complicated, really. It comes down to the fact that when nature packages food for us, that is absolutely delicious gee, what a surprise. It turns out that that's the best food for us. <laughs> for sure. I always say that limiting this to find out uh, how to get the best food is to find out where it came from. Like if you realize that the supply chain took 15, 20 steps, you know, you're trying to order strawberries in the winter, then there's probably <laughs> an issue there, you know? So I always, my top recommendations when you're, when people are looking for healthy options, I always say like, look for what's in season because most likely it's going to be a neighborhood down the store, like a farm down the, like down the road that you're getting it from. And then also just check out the supply chain. You know, if it's shipped 
across the world, packaged, boxed, pressed, oxidized, cartons mm-hmm. run over a couple of times. And then in the grocery store, <laughs> then maybe you ought to consider, you know, like uh, the quality, you know, because it's been manipulated. How many hands have touched it before it got onto your plate into into your body? And so I feel like finding those little hit like those notes is really the key to finding the healthiest version of food, I think. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. And in our course, uh, we teach people to ask three questions of any ingredient. So we say, how is it bred? So is this a wild caught Alaskan, you know, copper ribbon, ribbon, the river, you know, King salmon, or is it a farm salmon? And we don't know what it was fed, et cetera. Uh, is it a genetically modified salmon? I mean, people go in the store and they don't realize, hey, it says fresh Atlantic salmon. Well, if it's Atlantic salmon, it's farmed. There, you know, I think there's like three wild salmon in the Atlantic Ocean. So they're not catching them. Um, so how was it bred? That's the first question. And then to your point, you know, what was it fed? So it's so important we're finding out. And the studies are just, you know, it's a tip of the iceberg in terms of collecting the data. But we know intuitively that how we raise our food matters. And for example, a study came out and showed that the lamb, which when it comes from New Zealand, is generally grass finished, pastured, very kind of what in the US would be organically raised, has Mm -hmm. incredible levels of the omega-3 anti-inflammatory fatty acids, which is why your cardiologist tells you to eat salmon in the first place. (laughs) US market, uh, where they're often CAFO'd or, or concentrated in animal feeding operations, raised entirely differently, those beneficial compounds are non-existent. And so as we talked about earlier, there's a huge difference in where your you know what the lamb does for you in terms of flavor and in terms of nutrition depending on where it comes from. So, you know, how is it bred? What was it fed? And then finally, where was it led, which is, you know, all those points you raised about the post-processing. Right. Right. Um just to pivot a little bit, our conversation a little bit, I know that you you write a column or something for psychology um, today. And so I, I was curious on what that was about. And then also, how do you think your mental, uh, your psych plays into the foods that we eat and making decisions on your health? Uh, that's great. So I write, do write a column, a column uh, for psychology today uh, called You Are What You Eat. And it's pretty much all the things that we talk about. I love psychology today. You know, I've got a great editor. She gives me a lot of leeway. And so the columns I put out, I pretty much just expressing myself. And it's all the topics, you know, we're talking about today. So uh, there's several columns, for example, looking at the health benefits of wine. Um, There's a column in there because just within the last decade, they actually discovered a new organ in the brain and uh, the glymphomphatic system. And it turns out that studies have shown the glymphomphatic system is basically what helps your brain get rid of toxins. So it's basically kind of a sewer system for the brain, get rid of literally all the, you know, uh, all the shite in your brain and it goes into the CSF and it's flushed and moderate amounts of alcohol, at least in a mouse model, actually enhance that. So, you know, there's all this data out there looking for a mechanism in terms of showing that moderate alcohol consumption associated with lower rates of dementia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, consequently, obviously, alcohol abuse is, is associated with worse 
uh, mm -hmm. types of, of dementia through a different mechanism. But, you know, how does that work? And that was never really clear. And, and so there's a mechanism. We talk about that. So all, all sorts of fun stuff. We talk about culinary medicine, uh, obviously there. And in terms of how our food of, of affects our mood, it's, it's really a hugely evolving area of study, very cutting edge, mm -hmm. because I can tell you just a decade ago, we thought it was pretty much a one-way communication, top-down communication from the brain to the gut. And what you thought you wanted to eat, you told your gut you were hungry. And then maybe your gut said some stuff back and said, hey, I'm full. <laughs> well, it turns out that it's this incredible bi-directional communication. So the information that's coming in from, from our gut which if we look from an evolutionary perspective is really our first brain because every animal builds neurons around its gut first because like you have to eat, right? Mm. And that connects to our brain. And interestingly, and I talk about this in detail uh, in my last book, Food Shaman, the area that we processed food in our brain is a very primitive area of the brain. Mm. And it's the area where we process emotion, things like love. It's where we process things like sex. And in fact, many of the same areas of the brain that are involved with human beings for processing sex, desire, memory, etc., are the same ones involved in our perceptions, our interpretations, our experiences of food. So when Tony, the late, great Tony Bourdain said, good food leads to good sex as it should, man, he was spot on even from an anatomical and physiological perspective. <laughs> no, I, I think that is so, so cool because the thing is though, like I, I only know a little bit about how it connects, uh, with your mood, but then I started reading a lot more books and um, related to how food uh, impacts our psych, like our our mind, and how it communicates with uh, all the nerves in our body when we're hungry, and how it, our brain always reacts and responds to different cues. And so the reason why we hear certain things or when we smell certain things, it. it all of our nerves are involved to put in like triggers of when we like salivate or like when we feel a certain way or, or it calls on a memory and all these different things. And then when we consume certain foods, the chemical makeup of the foods that we eat can um, drive up our serotonin, which actually kind of makes us feel really good. It's the same thing, right? How you said it's involved with um, the same sort of feeling where we're really happy or like sex or different things like that. And so I think it's just so interesting. But at the same time, it is a double-edged sword. So if you eat a whole bunch of junk food, it's the same reason why we feel sluggish or awful or bloated or kind of you know, like slow and slimy, you know, those kind of descriptors. Um, so it's a really interesting flip uh, flip of the coin, you know, on each side of how food really impacts our moods and how we feel in that nature. Yeah. It, and it's one of the aspects of kind of that two-way street, that two-way communication. And I wrote about this in a, in a book a couple of years ago called The Fallacy of the Calorie, which looked at the modern Western diet, junk food, convenience food, which is forgive the pun, but I got to get one in on the show, <laughs> shoved down our throat, is, is built for one thing. And that is to really addict you so you come back for more. And mm -hmm. you know that is food as a business. That's agribusiness. And if I'm in the business of making fast food burgers, I want you to crave my burger more than my competitors. So that means adding things, adding certain levels of particularly sugar, salt, and fat so that I can, you know, ring your pleasure chime in your chrome dome there so that you go, oh gosh, you know, this is literally a, like a drug high. 
-hmm. And what happens is you start to crave it. And so that that modern Western diet is one that is built for addiction versus what we were talking about, you know, as chefs, where we're really in control of our own taste buds and we're experiencing these wonderful flavors and these subtle balances between sweet and salty and, you know, the acid and, and the, the mouthfeel of the fat and tying those into a positive food experience, which is, you know, where we eat, with whom we eat, when we eat, et cetera. So they're two very different things. And, and very often, unfortunately, in this country and other westernized countries, because people have been on that modern Western diet, they've been conditioned uh, to you know, eat for convenience, shop for convenience, mm -hmm. uh, pre-processed, ultra-processed uh, foods. Uh, again, something we cover in depth in, in the course. It becomes a matter of actually sort of getting back to zero first. You know, you got to break this addiction. I think a great example, I, I don't know if you remember back um, Morgan Spurlock in uh, what was that? Uh, Supersize Me. He's mm -hmm. like, I don't eat fast food. I'm going to go to McDonald's. He said, well, first, I really didn't like the taste, but, you know, I'm doing this mo movie thing, got to do it. And he said, after about two weeks, you know, I found myself at 1030 in the morning dreaming about what I was going to order one o'clock at lunch at the drive through I started to have an addiction. I started to have a craving. And so this is it's very, very complex and and includes uh, a lot of physiology. But beyond that, beyond the physiology, beyond the nutrition, there are all these soft issues. And when we talk about this, it's it's an important part of our course, which are these non-ingredient influences in what we choose to eat, which is how culture, the convenience culture drives us to make certain choices, um, whether we eat alone, whether we eat in a group, are we happy? Are we sad? You know, to, to sum it up, we and the, the meals that we consume are complicated. That's true. There's always, it's like everything that we eat has deeper roots than we understand, you know, like to understand how it even uh, arrived to our plate is just so many different cues that have played a role to get it there. You know, whether that's um, the red box marketing that they do in the grocery store or, you know, versus green and like the shelf placement and the whole psych on that or how certain marketing ploys have gotten there or the subtle uh, dopamine addiction that you mentioned um, of intense craving of the balance of fatty foods, sugary foods, um, that kind of cue that easy convenience, easy access, cheaper end, you know, it's affordable. So that it's the paths of friction to consume these foods are very, very low. So it's just, it's, it's easier. And so because it's easier, it's harder to fight, you know, it's harder to change a habit or to change that genetic makeup that we have when those cues are, are placed. And so I think that's a very interesting conversation to kind of start having, you know, and I think that at least as of recently, I, I'm a little bit more hopeful because I feel like a lot of people are starting to realize these subtle notes and in their life and they want to make a change and they realize that it's not okay. And so in certain cities, especially uh, I, I recently went to San Francisco this past summer and something that their uh, mayor and the people of the community, they're huge advocates. They do not want uh, certain brands and companies in their city because they know the effects. They want only local people uh, local chefs, local businesses there in their uh, location because that's part of their atmosphere and they don't want uh, huge corporations, you know, such as McDonald's or fast food restaurants to take over and change their community and the health and sustainability of their community. And I think that small changes like that, you know, just being advocates for uh, what you want, you know, speak smiles. 
Yeah, I think so. And, and I always encourage people, you know, vote with your your pocketbook uh, for a number of reasons. You know, one, you know, Walmart is the lo- largest supplier in the U.S. of organic fruits and vegetables. And I always tell folks, you know, that's not because Walmart really cares about our health. Um, they certainly don't care about the flavor of, of the foods that we eat if they individually make us happy. Walmart cares about a dollar and they know that a lot of people want it. It's a profitable market for them and that's why they do it. And so there is a supply there. So while individually we may feel pretty weak and like, yeah, it doesn't really make a difference if I shop, you know, locally and organically and buy this or that for me, um, you know, in aggregate, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, and it's important that it make a difference for you personally. You know, I always said that the story of, of food is the story of humankind. Mm-hmm. And we all have an individual food story. You know, at the end of the day, you know, what I find delicious, you might find repulsive. That's okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's our story. So, as individuals out there, don't, you know, don't let people tell you what to eat. You don't need this diet or that diet or buy this or buy that, you know, source those ingredients, get quality ingredients and enjoy it. Life is way too short not to, you know, enjoy. And, and so select those things, explore those foods, um, you know, let that uh, be your palate. Double entendre pun here, as in painting <laughs> palette, as in tasting palette. Um, you know, to to you paint the pictures, paint the food, create those dishes that that you love. And you know, food should be happy. Uh, one of you know the things that that I, I say to folks who take the class is there is no salvation in deprivation. And so you know, there it's uh, the story of the Buddha. So I, I don't know if many people know this, but you know, very short, very quickly, you know, the, the Buddha initially was a prince and he was very, very wealthy and he lived this life of luxury and he lived in, in a walled city and he never knew, even saw anybody suffering until one day he went outside the walls said, oh my goodness, this is horrible. And, and clearly this path of excess is not the way to the road of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so he actually became an ascetic uh, with several other um, ascetics. Uh, over the next several years, and he almost died. And you'll see pictures if you go to the Orient and statues of this skinny, we're usually used to kind of the fat, happy Buddha, of this very skinny, emaciated Buddha. And that that is Buddha the ascetic. And he, he was living on a grain of rice a day, and he was actually on his deathbed when he was saved by a little girl who gave him a glass of milk. And all the other ascetics said, oh, we're kicking you out of our club, man. You broke the rules. Get out of here. And he said, you know, what I learned from this is that you know, asceticism, this deprivation, that is not the way to enlightenment either. Enlightenment lies in the middle way. And mm-hmm. so I think that that those are words of wisdoms for the, the culinary Buddha in each of us, you know, to nourish uh, and, and to really help grow. And so, you know, uh, find what you like to eat, get quality ingredients and, and really enjoy food. Food for me, and I think for you, you would agree for you too. You know, it, it should be a thing of enjoyment, not, not a thing of suffering. I agree. I agree. Um, question, have you always lived in Montana your whole life? No, I was actually born in South Bronx. So uh, I'm an original native New Yorker. Okay. Um, then I grew up in the Northeast, um, lived in the South for, for many years. Um, I went to the University of Virginia, did my undergraduate there, did medical school at, in Virginia, did my cardiology fellowship and was on staff at University of Virginia. Go Wahoos. We finally won a basketball championship. 
and uh, actually came to Montana to work with the university here in developing the culinary medicine program, which we've been working on for the last several years. It's been available to students here, and I'm so excited because uh, this summer and hopefully later this month, we'll actually make our Introduction to Culinary Medicine a program which the students can take. It's a three-level course, and it'll be the same material we give our students available to the general public. I love that. I love that so much. Um, the reason why I had asked is because I, I I don't think I've ever been to Montana. I've lived, I'm a military kid, so I've lived a little bit of everywhere, but I mm. haven't lived in Montana. And so I wanted to know what the food uh, culture is like over there. What is something that uh, stick has stuck in, has stuck out, stuck, I think that's the word, <laughs> has stuck out to you the most in Montana culture or what's something weird or unique that's over there that nobody really knows about? Well, first of all, you're always invited to come. I live in Western Montana. The University of Montana is in Missoula. I live right outside of Missoula. So you're welcome to come. Let me know if you're coming. To everyone else out there, sorry, Montana's full. Um, (laughs) And one of the things that that actually drew me to Montana was I was up here working and I went to the farmer's market, as I usually do when I'm uh, on assignment working somewhere, and it was one of the best farmer's markets I'd ever experienced anywhere. And I've been to farmer's markets around the world in different countries, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe the the fantastic produce and, and product. And so there is an incredible food culture here that is really dedicated not only to providing, you know, organic, fresh, local product, but really doing it in a sustainable way that's good for us as individuals, fantastic for us as chefs, uh, but importantly, you know, good for the environment and good for the earth in the long term. And, and to give you an example, just at the University of Montana, I know the uh, food director there, the students actually get organic food. So, you know, when I was in college back in the day, I went to the food hall and it was all, you know, the the Cisco trucks mm-hmm. pulling up and unloading, you know, processed stuff. And they drop it in the deep fryer and you'd go through and, and get this. These guys are getting, you know, fresh organic vegetables, you know, throughout the summer, rotating crops. Uh, they have, you know, great agricultural programs. So, uh, you know, I have a fresh bison. If folks follow me at Chef Dr. Mike, Chef Dr. Mike on Facebook, um, uh, Twitter, uh, real chef, Dr. Mike on Instagram, you'll mm-hmm. see, I, I put up a picture today. You know, one of the things I think we can do precious with COVID is, you know, we can't travel as we used to. I was supposed to be in Europe this summer, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, doing some work, uh, but we can take platecations. If we can't get on a plane, we can get on our plate. So I have, uh, you know, some great local rabbit. I got some fresh organic vegetables from my local farm and, you know, some fresh English thyme growing in my chef's garden out back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did a pan roasted rabbit with fresh veg and a mushroom, you know, gravy that you might get at Downton Abbey. So, you know, we travel to, to the UK, you know, I got there after all, maybe it was just on my plate. So the, the food culture is fantastic. Uh, all the, the resources are here. And for folks that don't have access to that, use this little thing called the internet because they're, <laughs> you know, they're still delivering and, and you can access, uh, you know, great fresh wild Alaskan seafood. You can mm. support local growers, um, you know, get out there and, and get the good stuff. I love that. That is so cool. And I definitely relate to the whole Cisco thing. I used to be um, a culinary manager over at the University of Central Florida for about a year. And it 
killed me a little bit inside. The fact that like everything was Cisco, like Cisco everything. And it just didn't feel right serving certain things from a can, like easy things like corn or, you know, things that we should be able to have access to. And, you know, like these uh, college students are paying an arm and a leg for these meal plans. And so the fact that they can't have access to really high quality food was just really disheartening, you know, a little bit. So it was just an interesting experience on that end. But that's so cool that Montana has the most beautiful farmers markets. I have to that's a reason to go for sure, because I I feel like I have definitely been to my fair share of uh, markets. And so even in New Jersey, it's like the largest market in the US, I think the longest strip in Columbus. And I've been to that one. And so let's see, you know, I have to go to Montana and check it out. Yeah, and we actually, you know, within walking distance, we actually have two farmers markets. um, And then there's a craft market in between. And that's in downtown Missoula. Um, you know, I get my bison uh, from Bitterroot Bison, you know, that's uh, just down the road. It's the only certified humane bison ranch in the country. You know, I, I get grass fed uh, beef. Uh, a friend just raises it, you know, on their farm. We have a, a sheep ranch that does sheep's cheese, best feta that I've had outside mm. of Greece, anywhere in the country. And obviously you can get some fresh lamb. So it just, uh, I'm, I'm blessed with incredible opportunities. And, and one of the interesting things that actually came in to play with this whole COVID thing was Montana's great, but you know, there, there's not a lot of fresh stuff in the winter. So and what I encourage people to do, you go to a farmer's market, right? Those heirloom tomatoes, they're, you know, 50 cents a pound because everybody's mm-hmm. raising them, bring them into the market, mm-hmm. you know, find ways to preserve it uh, that keep those flavors. So you might pickle it, you might turn it into a red sauce, uh, you might can them, and then you can use those things through the winters. So when we had all these runs on different types of food, you know, in Montana, I have two chest freezers out there for for and a huge pantry full of stuff from the summer because because that's how we live so mm-hmm. that I can continue that pattern of having that fresh, local, quality, organic ingredients year round and do it economically. Because like I said, when zucchinis, you know, 25 cents for six pounds, <laughs> you, you, you that's when you want to buy it. You know, you, don't, you like you said, you don't want to be buying strawberries from you know, the uh, South America in January, they're picked underripe. They don't taste like strawberries. They're, they're awful. Why bother? Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And they're too expensive to, yeah, they're yes. too expensive for what they taste like in the, in the off season. So I just wanted to wrap up the show a little bit, but something that I do with all of my special guests on the show is that if the listeners didn't have an opportunity to listen to anything that we've spoken about thus far, what would you say? What would be your last uh, points of advice or your two cents or your mic drop when you peace out and leave, you know, what is something that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, you know, I'd say, you know, for me, obviously this is, this is my passion. And from my perspective, you know, culinary medicine is, you know, brings the arts and, and brings the science really together. And I think there's sort of like five life lessons of culinary medicine that I would share. Uh, and, and they're sort of the five P's. So the first one is be present. You know, when you eat a meal, um, if it's absolutely, totally delicious, you're in that moment, you know, with who you are. So be present in the meal, 
be present in your life. You know, so often we're we're wandering about, you know, what happened yesterday? Oh, that was awful. We're stressed about what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a huge Bulls fan, Michael Jordan fan. And something that struck with me when I watched that recent documentary on The Last Dance was he said, what separated Jordan out was his ability to be in the present. He never worried about the failure of taking a, of a shot that he hadn't even taken yet. And so that's that's a chef's mindset, man. You're going into the kitchen. Be present, you know, be passionate. Have passion in what you do. That gives you focus. That gives you energy. That gives you drive. Be patient. You know, you know, right? You can't rush a risotto. It's going to take, it cooks, as I like to say, <laughs> in risotto time. You know, I did a, uh, a peach and red wine, a roasted leg of lamb, a la mignon, yet, uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. It took six hours to roast. It <laughs> wasn't done in two hours. So... Be patient when you cook. Be patient with yourself. You're not a microwave meal. You're something that requires seasoning, development to reach your ultimate perfection. Be patient with yourself. Next is, you know, um, be persistent. Don't let anybody tell you you can. And I think as I certainly have, and you probably have too, as a chef, there are, there are plenty of folks in the kitchen ready to put you down and tell you you can't do things, you can't make things, you can't, and you can't do things in life. Be persistent. Only, you know, the, the future is yours. You determine it. And finally, you know, uh, keep perspective. This is about our lives. And at the end of the day, it's our personal reality that creates the world. And, and I think it was uh, a very famous uh, a philosopher, you know, who once said, we create the world more than it creates us. So, you know, we talked about the mind and the food and the interaction and, and, and it's what, you know, things, the world is what we perceive of it, what we make of it. So, so keep that perspective, be positive. And I think those five P's are, are the key to success in the kitchen uh, success in health and success in life. Wow, that was um, P.S. and powerful. Wow, that was really long. Okay. <laughs> no, oh, we but... might have to make it the six piece. Oh, that was awesome, God. Precious. Oh, gosh. I, did, I didn't think. Okay, that was really rough. But um, no, thank you so much for sharing that. Honestly, I think that was a very strong sentiment to. I like how it tied into not only um, what we eat and as a chef, but then also how you can apply it to your life. And so thank you again, uh, Chef Dr. Mike, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chef. Um, I enjoyed it. This is great. It's been wonderful. And stay in touch. You know, uh, folks can follow me at chefdrmike.com. Forgive us. We're revamping the website because we're going to be giving direction and and links and things to the culinary medicine course launching a little uh, later uh, this month. But uh, follow us on social media. And um, thanks again, uh, Chef Precious. Um, Let's stay in touch. Uh, I I totally enjoyed this. Of course. Um, I know that you have a couple of books out. Um, Can you do you mind listing them for the listeners just in case they wanted to check them out? Sure. Um, The two that really cover the topics we talked about today were Fallacy of the Calorie, um, which talks about the modern Western diet and Food Shaman, which really forms a foundation for the culinary medicine as we teach it. Both of those are on Amazon, as is uh, Ancient Each, which is, if you're a foodie, you'll kind of like that. That's a historical food fiction. All the historical events, all the foods are true to the Viking times and ancient classical Greece. And there's a couple of characters in there, one based on uh, Gordon Ramsay and one based on Anthony Bourdain (laughs) that, that take you on a culinary historical food journey. 
That's really cool. Okay, those uh, books uh, will be listed in the show notes if you guys are interested in checking that out. But thank you again for being a guest. I can't wait uh, to see uh, what you have in the future, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Me too. Thanks. Bye, Chef. Thank you to everyone who tuned in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to leave a review and to share it with your friends, family, neighbors, and whoever, wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'll catch you guys next time. And as always, live life with love and love food with life. Bye.